Good morning. So good to see you and to be together here at church to worship the Lord through singing. And now uh, we have a chance to open up God's Word and read uh, Scripture together and study it together. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it to Mark chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some on the seats uh, in front of you, below the seats there, or we'll have the words up on the screen. Again, Mark chapter 7, where we're uh, continuing our series, walking through this fabulous book of the Bible, one chunk at a time. If you're new, I'm glad that you're with us. Welcome. We're so glad to have you here. And again, this is just a special time in our service that we take uh, every week, time to look at God's Word together. And so as we prepare to jump into the text, would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for your grace and your love and your kindness and for all that you have given us. Lord, we thank you for a chance to be gathered here as your church, as your people, to worship you, Lord. And we pray now that you would open our eyes and our ears to hear from you. Holy Spirit, would you speak to us, help us to understand your word and to understand these truths that we are about to read. Thank you, Lord. We give you this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it seems like our world is getting increasingly odd and strange. I mean, have you ever read a news story, an article, or come across a headline and it just makes you go, what? Like, wait, what? Let me give you an example. One on the screen here. This is from our friends up in Alaska. The headline reads, Peninsula Bear Entertains Kids, Officials Suspicious of Its Motives. Again, what? Like, I don't even know what that means. What's going on there? Apparently a, a bear of some kind. We're glad he's spending time with the children, but we're a little concerned about his motives for doing so. Or another example here, this I love. A missing woman unwittingly joins search party looking for herself. Again, wait, what? What? Apparently this woman was a tourist, and uh, during the day on her tour group, she went and she changed clothes, and her look was so different apparently afterwards that the group didn't realize it was her, and so they thought she was missing, and they wrote up a description, and this woman didn't realize that it was describing her. And so they spent hours, she joined the search party looking for herself until eventually they realized uh, that she was there. So again, what? Or one more, this is probably my favorite. Police, driver who asked Jesus to take the wheel hits motorcyclist. Can we say it together? What? What? Apparently a woman was driving and heard a word from the Lord saying, quote, I'll take it from here. And so she let go of the wheel, literally let Jesus take the wheel, and promptly ran down a motorcyclist on accident. So not sure what was going on there, but again, what? This happens. This is strange. And I would argue that a similar thing happens sometimes when we approach Scripture. We, we read things in the Bible. We come across certain passages, and they make us go, wait, what? I don't get that. And we're going to read a, a passage like that this morning in Mark chapter 7, where something Jesus says strikes us as a bit odd, and we're not quite sure what to do with that. And so, Picking up where we left off last week, at the end of Mark chapter 7, we're 
starting in verse 24. So let me read it for us. Mark 7, verse 24. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. And the woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed, and the demon was gone. And so we see in this passage, there's a woman whose little girl, her daughter, is possessed by an impure spirit, is afflicted in some way by a force of evil, by a demon, and she comes in desperation to Jesus. She's a desperate mother searching for a cure for her child. And the wait, what moment comes in verse 27 where Jesus essentially insults her, calls her a dog, and tells her no. It's an insult. He seems at first to deny her and speak rather harshly to her. And so we're going to explore exactly what is going on in this passage together. But before we unpack it, I want us to see the familiar things in this text and in a couple passages that follow. There are some things here that we've seen before. Maybe you noticed, again, in the book of Mark, we've seen Jesus encounter people that were affected by demons, impure spirits that were afflicting them. And what do we see before? He heals them. He, he powerfully cast out demons from people. We've seen this earlier in the book of Mark, and we see that that's ultimately what he does for this woman's daughter. He powerfully heals. Let's keep reading and see more familiar pieces, though. In the very next section of Scripture, starting in verse 31, where we stopped reading, it says, Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk. And they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. And then he spit and touched the man's tongue. And he looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephatha, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened. His tongue was loosened and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement, verse 37 says. He has done everything well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So as we read on, we again see some familiar things, don't we? Jesus healing, powerfully demonstrating his authority and control over the natural world, over diseases, over illness, over ailments. We've seen him before heal chronic illness those with fevers, those who were unable to walk. And here Jesus, in a rather strange way, commands this man's ears to be opened and loosens his tongue so that he can speak. He sticks his fingers in his ears, which is 
a little odd, a little different. And it seems that maybe because this man was deaf, he was trying to visually demonstrate for him what was about to happen, that he was going to heal his ears, he was going to heal his tongue and allow him to speak. And he commands his ears to be open and his tongue to be loosened. And we read in verse 35 that what happens? The man's ears were opened and his tongue was loosened and he began to speak plainly. So again, another example of a powerful healing that Jesus does. This one is a little different because it has echoes of the Old Testament. Isaiah 35 verse 6 I'll have for us in a second. But in the Old Testament, there was these descriptions, this picture of what would happen when the Messiah comes, when the kingdom of God comes in its fullness. And chapter 35 of Isaiah is describing what that will be like. And verse 6 of that chapter says this, Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the mute tongue will shout for joy. In other words, physical Bodies and ailments will be healed and restored to their proper function. And here Jesus is doing just that. The mute man who could not speak properly, now his tongue is loosened. And Jesus has brought healing, fulfilling the words of the Old Testament. And providing again another powerful sign of his healing. That he is the Messiah. In verse 37 it says, Again, a line that we've read before. People were, again, overwhelmed with amazement. The crowds couldn't believe the things that they were seeing. Again, familiar story. One more chunk. I know we're moving kind of fast here. Chapter 8, verse 1, the very next verse. During those days, another large crowd gathered since they had nothing to eat. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way, because some of them have come a long distance. And his disciples answered, But where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? Verse 5, How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. And so he told the crowd to sit down on the ground, and when he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well, and he gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. And the people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. After he had sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dal Manutha. Again, what do you notice? So something very familiar. Just a couple chapters earlier, Jesus fed the 5,000 in a miraculous way, providing abundantly food for them to eat and enjoy. They all ate and were satisfied, despite the slim resources that the disciples had with them. And the details of this account are nearly identical. The crowd gathers, there's compassion that Jesus displays on the crowds, there's not enough resources to go around, Jesus miraculously provides food, they all ate and were satisfied, and there were even some leftovers. Again, reminding us of the abundant provision that Jesus alone can provide. And so, 
we took a quick look at these three events that are back to back to back. And as I was studying them this week, again, I just saw the, the repetition of themes that we've seen before. And so I thought that'd be important for us to notice, to slow down, because this repetition is not a bad thing. It's not a, a boring thing. It's instead an important way that God communicates with us. When we read a book of the Bible or, or look throughout Scripture and we see themes that are repeated, it's kind of a, a cue to us that these are pretty important truths that are being communicated. I've said this before, when Scriptures were written, it was not that a bold font could be used or a highlighter or a pen or really cool papyrus fancy font on a word processor to, to make certain things stand out. No, if, if the authors of Scripture and ultimately God himself wanting certain things to stand out, they would be repeated. We, we'd see them once again. And so that's what we see here in the end of Mark chapter 7 and the beginning of Mark chapter 8. And so I don't know exactly what that means for you today, but chances are you can relate to something that we've just read. One of these three examples, this desperate mother, being a desperate parent, concern for the well-being of your children, feeling like your family is broken or being afflicted or fighting an uphill battle, crying out to Jesus, would you help? Maybe you can relate to this man, deaf, unable to speak. Some kind of physical ailment is sticking with you that you're desiring healing from. You're crying out to the Lord, would you help this illness, this addiction, this conflict that seems to keep creeping into my life? Or maybe you can resonate with the crowd of 4,000. This weary crowd, this hungry crowd. This crowd in, in need of compassion or, or the disciples in that narrative that are overwhelmed by the needs that are in front of them. Again, maybe you can relate to one of these people where you cry out to the Lord, Lord, would you help? Lord, would you intervene? Lord, something has to change in my life because right now it's not going well. Help me with this addiction, this anger that I'm feeling, this depression, this illness, this stress, this exhaustion, whatever it is, Lord, Lord, would you help? And we're reminded in these three examples that Jesus intervenes. He, he enters powerfully and transforms these situations that are desperate. He powerfully acts. He's able to meet us where we are. He's able to heal. He's able to save, to provide for us what we ultimately need. And so I think God wants us to be reminded of those truths again this morning. There's many familiar things here, but there's also, again, some differences from passages we've read before. Some new things that are somewhat striking, kind of stand out to us. And so let's go back through a little more slowly. And look at a few of these verses and, and see what God is saying to us. First, verse 24, back to the very beginning that we started with this morning. It tells us an important detail. Jesus is in the region of Tyre, the vicinity of Tyre. Now, what is important about that is that this is not a Jewish region. It's not a 
Jewish territory. To use the, the biblical word, it's a Gentile region. Non-Jewish. Not a predominantly Jewish area. And for what we know about the ancient world, this would mean something significant for a good Orthodox Jew. It would be somewhat uncomfortable territory. Because we've talked about this before, especially last week, the, the Jews had this very strong sense of, of clean and unclean. Right? They had strict dietary laws, clean and unclean food, and there were even clean and unclean people. And so when the clean people, the Jews, came into contact with the unclean people, the Gentiles, that would make the clean people unclean. It would defile them. It would make them ceremonially unable to participate in worship, require them to wash in a certain way. And so because of that, the Jews were, were skeptical of the surrounding nations. Kind of looked at them with a side eye. Kind of not sure they wanted to get too close or interact with them in a very meaningful way. It's kind of like they were wearing a, a white shirt and it was spaghetti night at the dinner table. Ever been there? I worked at a Christian camp for a long summer and every Monday night it was spaghetti night at the common area and I always ended up wearing a white shirt on accident. Every time. And I came in, what are you doing? You know, if you're at an Italian restaurant and there's spaghetti and meatballs and it's splattered and you kind of, no, you're, you're really careful and kind of guarded because what? You don't want to get dirty. You don't want to ruin this nice clean shirt that you've worn. And so in light of that, in this context, this woman approaches. And what does the text tell us? Verse 24. She's a desperate mother. She's a Greek woman. She's a, excuse me, not 24, verse 26. She was a Greek woman. She was born in Syrian Phoenicia. She's not a Jewish woman. She would be considered an unclean woman. And on top of it all, her daughter is possessed by an impure spirit, by the forces of evil. And it's her that comes and begs Jesus for help. And how does Jesus respond? Verse 24. Excuse me, not verse 20. Same verse 24. Verse 27. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her. For it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. So what's he saying? He's referring to the Jews, the people of Israel, as the children. The children of God, the children at the table of God who enjoy the blessings of God, who eat the bread and the food that God the Father provides. He's saying it's not right to take what belongs to them, the bread or the Messiah, the, the blessings of the Messiah, the blessings of salvation. It's not right to take it from the Jews, the children, and toss it to the dogs or the Gentiles. The non-Jews, he's essentially saying to her, no, not going to heal you or your daughter. What I have is not for you. Can we all say it together? What? What? Jesus? He calls her a dog. Less than human. And this wasn't a term of endearment. Like, what's up, dog? You know, it wasn't that kind of thing or... Dogs in, in this culture were not usually the sort of cuddly, cute dogs that we enjoy in our homes, that sleep in our beds. No, these dogs in this 
first century mindset were usually strays, usually somewhat dangerous, usually somewhat aggressive. They were dirty. And so calling someone a dog in the ancient world was, make no mistake, an insult. A significant derogatory comment. And so some commentators will try and kind of soften the blow and, and note that the language Jesus uses is a little bit different than the usual Greek word used for a dog, which, which is true. It's not the usual Greek word, but I'm not really convinced that that helps because essentially, again, he calls her a dog. Less than human. Not a child. No spot at the table. Under the table as an animal. It's just so strange. It's, it's so unlike the Jesus that we've come to know. I mean, at face value, his statement is correct. He is the Jewish Messiah, came to save the Jewish people. He's the king of the Jews, no doubt. But we see that the blessings of salvation are to pour over and extend from the Jews to all the world. Extend to all people. So why would he say no to this healing here? And I don't mean that this just sounds unlike the Jesus I want him to be. You know, like I have this picture of Jesus and he's not really quite fitting my picture. That's not what I mean. I mean, it seems so out of line with the Jesus that we see revealed in the scriptures. With the Jesus that we see elsewhere that welcomes sinners and tax collectors. That touches the unclean, the lepers, that we've seen elsewhere in Mark chapter 5 even, just a few chapters earlier, Jesus goes to a non-Jewish region and he heals a man with unclean spirits, the legion of demons in him. Remember that? The herd of pigs on the countryside nearby. And so we've already seen him heal Gentiles and cast demons out of them. And so why in the world would he stop here and say no and insult this woman? I think he planned to heal this woman all along. And I think he's trying to teach his disciples something significant in a clever, roundabout way. There's a parallel to this uh, passage in Matthew chapter 15. Same event that it's describing. And there he shares a key detail that helps us make sense of this. In Matthew chapter 15, when this is all going on, this woman desperate approaches Jesus and the disciples, and it says there that the disciples begged Jesus to send her away. She's bothering us, Jesus. Get her out of here. She's unclean, Jesus. We don't want to deal with her. Send her away. This desperate mother, her daughter's afflicted. We don't care. Send her away, Jesus. And so despite this recent teaching from Jesus that we saw last week where he tries to help his Jewish disciples understand that the line that they draw between clean and unclean is somewhat misguided and they're missing the point. Despite that, they still seem to want to separate themselves from the unclean world from these non-Jews, from those that are in need, from this desperate Greek mother with a possessed daughter. And so the disciples say, send her away, Jesus. 
And I think here, the best explanation for Jesus' response is that he's mirroring back to them their biased hearts. He's mirroring for them their lack of love and compassion. And in a powerful teaching moment, with the disciples looking on, he acts out the results of their hard hearts. Let me give you an example. There's a man named Rick, Rick Lawrence. He's a Christian and an author, and he wrote this book called Shrewd one time. It was a very interesting read, but in that book, he shares this story about how a mentor in his life used a somewhat unconventional method to teach him a lesson one time. And he says this, one night as this man, this mentor was leaving his home where they held their weekly men's group meetings, he said, I said something about my wife that seemed to me well within the boundaries of a mild and sociable complaint, a minor frustration, the kind of thing, sorry to admit, that men say all too often. When his mentor, after hearing this, turned to him and said, your wife is so annoying. She's the worst. Says, okay. He was, he was stunned. He was speechless. And he said, I studied his face to see if he was joking or something of that nature. Nope. Said the awkward tension of that moment wobbled me. Should I, should I be offended? Should I take a swing at him? Should I let his remark go? Should I ask him to clarify? Should I admit that he's right? I didn't know what to do. He said, I managed to stammer, no, 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 of course not. I, I didn't mean it that way. And his mentor said, with his eyes still boring into him, no, no, I get it. She's really annoying. She's the worst. Why don't you just come out and say it? He said, I stood there awkwardly searching for even one word I could say in response. I had nothing. He said, so my mentor smiled, told me he'd see me next week, and he left. <laughs> Walked away. And as he was reflecting on this encounter, Rick, the author, said, he had stripped me naked. He had left me there for public view. I wrestled with indignation and exposure and confusion. And in the middle of that, it dawned on me that what he had done was merely accurately shined a flashlight into a dark place in my soul. His motivation was to drive me to repentance you see, what his mentor had done was he helped him see what was truly in his heart by speaking it, by voicing it, so that Rick could see it and see how ugly it was and repent of it in a startling way. And so I think that Jesus is doing something similar here for his disciples. Shining a light on a dark place of their hearts, verbalizing their resentment towards these non-Jews so they could see it, so they could see its ugliness, so they could turn from it in this powerful teaching moment. This is powerful when a teacher draws you in, draws you in, you think he's saying what you want him to say, and then he flips the switch and turns the tables and heals the woman. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's what Jesus is doing. We see the woman's response. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. 
And he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. So she went home and found her child lying on the bed, and the demon was gone. So we see this, this woman, despite all this going on, she displays great faith. Great faith in Jesus' power to heal. Notice she doesn't act offended. She doesn't assert her rights. She doesn't say, you owe me this. Jesus, I deserve this. Jesus, she doesn't do that. She just humbly recognizes him. I'm not a Jew. And yet, the blessings of salvation, the blessings of the Messiah, the Savior of the world are so abundant that they spill over even to me. They spill over for all the people on earth. And he sees she gets it. She gets it in a way that the disciples have failed to get it, even though they spent so much time with Jesus. When Jesus heals her daughter, the blessings of God are for all the world. They're so abundant, so rich, so good. And I think that that's what's going on in these other narratives we've read that follows Verse 31, where Jesus goes and heals the deaf man, it says Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre, where he was with the Greek woman, and now he goes through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee, and into the region of the Decapolis. The Decapolis was an area, again, not predominantly Jewish. Some Jews lived there, but there were predominantly Gentiles there, and there he performs this powerful healing, showing that the healing and the blessings of God are not limited to the people of Israel. And then the last section where he feeds the 4,000. This also, we believe, is in a Gentile region. When he fed the 5,000, that was likely in a Jewish area. Now he's outside the limits of Israel, outside the limits of the Jewish world. And he's abundantly providing, showing that the grace of God, the abundant salvation and provision of God is not limited to Israel. So three scenes, back to back, all three from this little Gentile excursion. The healing from the demon, the healing of the deaf man, and the feeding of the 4,000, which all leads us to the question, who is this good news for? The good news of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, who is it for? Everyone. It's for everyone. He wanted to remind his disciples this. He wanted to remind us of this truth because you see in the first century, although the Jewish people were always intended to bless the nations, they had a tendency again to turn inward, to focus on themselves, to despise or separate themselves from the world around them, to keep those people out. Jesus is trying to help them see the grace of God, the blessings of God for all people. The good news of the gospel is for the entire world, even these Gentiles. I heard a story one time of a former missionary in Poland that was doing some ministry there after World War II. And while they were sharing the gospel, the good news of salvation and Forgiveness of sins with people. This younger woman came up to him and 
a little bit of a concerned look on her face, and she said this. She said, are you saying that if these Nazi war criminals, if those running the concentration camps, those that killed so many families and friends and people that we know, Hitler himself, if, if they were to come and repent of their sins and, and cast themselves on the grace of God, you're saying that he would forgive them? And they thought about it. And they tried to thoughtfully respond. Well, yes. I mean, God, God's grace is, is offered for all people, no matter how bad they've sinned, no matter how much harm they've done or how badly they've hurt you. And this woman looked at them and said, I'll never believe in a God like that. And walked away. I'll never believe in a God like that. As I thought about that story, her candid response just reminded me how hard it is for some of us to believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news, even for our enemies. That the grace of God is so wide that it's even for those who have hurt us, even for those that have wronged us in horrific ways. That the grace of God is wide enough for, for those people, for the people that we think have fallen too far, for the people that have made a mess of their lives, the people that are different from us, the people that we frankly don't like. Is the gospel of Jesus Christ good news even for those people? Even for those that you have a hard time loving? Is the gospel still good news for them? Is it still good news for me? Is the grace of God wide enough even for us? Jesus reminds us today that the gospel is good news for all the world. There are no limits on the grace and mercy of God. And it leaves us to reflect on the question, exactly who is this good news for? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths that we find in it, Jesus, of your power to heal, to save, to provide, to restore. And we're reminded how we sometimes, like the disciples, have such a hard time believing that your grace and your mercy is for all the world. Lord, would you help us to be a people that freely offers your love and kindness and grace to those that we encounter in Benicia, in Vallejo, in the entire Bay Area, in our country, and to the nations, Lord. Help us to be people that truly believe that your grace and mercy is so wide, even for people like us. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>